Hello and welcome to One Up in Events podcast, the events industry podcast that shares event professionals' experiences of what they have gone through that has helped them one up in their events career. This podcast is a fun and informal way to learn from industry peers and I hope inspires you to one up in your career too. I'm your host, event professional and influencer, Nicola Root. So today, I have a very exciting guest with me, Richard Waddington. He is the events industry's advisor, investor and mentor. He is an amazing human being, one of the event leaders in our industry, the former founder and CEO of the largest global events agency. He is chair of EMA, an association for in-house corporate event planners and marketeers chairman of MiceBook and runs his consultancy business in helping events agencies grow and develop. I have been extremely lucky to work alongside Richard and have learned a great deal from him. He's been an inspiration to me and an incredible mentor. I admire Richard's passion and determination he provides our industry and I'm sure you will be left feeling inspired today. I'm so excited to have you here, Richard, and I can't wait to delve into your experiences and learn what has made you one up in your career and become the successful entrepreneur that you are today. So welcome, Richard, to One Up in Events podcast. Thank you very much, Nicola. Oh, I'm blushing. I'm blushing. Well, you've been amazing. You've always been a really, really good mentor to me. And you're the one that's taught me to, you know, really find out what I want to do myself and taught me about process and about the industry. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to do this. It's very much about what I'm about. If I can impart a bit of knowledge, a bit of experience, a few ideas to people and it helps people, then that's that's great. That's that's really what you know I am all about now. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about my background, some of the decisions that I've made, setting up First Protocol, leaving First Protocol, etc. And so if we sort of kind of contextualize that around decisions, opportunities, confidence, belief, purpose, is kind of something you know, want to get across. Yeah, a bit of background on me. Little old Richard Waddington. Just turned 60, can't believe it. Uh, oh my gosh, happy birthday. You know, I look back over my career, 45 years plus, and I honestly, I pinch myself. I, I, I look back and I feel how fortunate I have been. I've had some tough, some stressful, some painful and disappointing times. You know, when I lump my whole career together, I do feel, wow, and how that beep, just in case you're not beeping things out, how beep did I, how, how did I achieve that? And you know, that's what I kind of want to share. You can swear if you'd like to swear. Oh, okay. All right. All right. <laughs> you know, I want to share some of that. And to be honest, a lot of the decisions I made were instinctive. They were from the gut. They weren't very well, very well thought through at the times. So mistakes were made. And whilst I always look at mistakes as lessons, I think you and I had that conversation a few times, I don't make the same mistake twice. If you can remove some of the mistakes from your journey, you'll have a much smoother road to travel. But rest assured, everyone, there will be mistakes. There will be lessons along the way. And what's really important is how you deal with them, you know, how you react to them and pick yourself up, dust yourself off and move on. And you know, don't kind of have regrets. Well, you can have regrets, but don't, don't, don't hang on to those regrets. Just, well, that's a lesson. Put it behind you. Move on. What would you say is probably the 
biggest mistake? What was your biggest lesson? Well, now you're throwing in random questions to me. <laughs> um, in running first protocols, probably not being as decisive as I should have been and be more consolidative in finding outcomes and solutions and, and not being as direct with a few people as in setting, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing, let's do this. I was very much always about a much more considered approach and listening to everybody, everything else, and hoping that everybody was moving along this journey together. I think I probably could have been a little bit more forthright without being dictatorial. I think that's, you know, that's totally not the way to go. Again, this is sort of giving just me people a bit of a background. So, you know, as an individual at an early age, I was very rebellious at school, um, hated education. Back in the 60s, teachers didn't know what they know, what they do today and now. But looking back, you know, I am dyslexic. I have a certain level of ADHD, so attention deficit, hyperactive disorder. Uh, you know, I excelled in art and crafts like metalwork and woodwork, uh, technical drawing. I was great at sports, but, you know, maths and English and all that crap. Ugh. And of course, what I've learned along that is that, you know, once you read into this stuff and you learn more today, you know, um, all these sort of tests you can take and everything else, is I'm a very visual, creative, hyperactive risk taker. And funny enough, these are all traits that many entrepreneurs have. If I knew that then, where would I be? But it is, it is important to understand your personal strengths and weaknesses. And I know we did that thing called uh, Strength Builders, working with you guys. And I think, you know, you can use that. It's a great book, great thing. So anyone out there, Strength Builders or knowing your strengths, if you don't know what they are, look it up online. You buy a book, you can read the book, you take a test online. And it, it gives you some clarity about where you're good and where you're bad. And anybody out there with young kids, they do it for young kids now as well. Basically, the idea is focus on your strengths, not on your weaknesses in developing that further. So whilst I started my career and everything in hotels at the ripe old age of 16 back in 77, I realized now I started my hunger for business at a much earlier age, running a tuck shop at school, hiring coaches on a Friday night for trips up to Birmingham. I lived in Malvern in Worcestershire, so taking a bunch of other kids up to the Silver Blades in Birmingham to go ice skating. Hiring a bus and 40 kids on a coach, no adults. That's amazing. At the age of 15, I don't think you'd get away with it today. But yeah, I was making a fortune. Brilliant. <laughs> now, one of the other things I always say is, if you don't ask, you don't get. It's a good old Yorkshire saying, but hey, lad, if you don't ask for it, you won't get for it. And being a Yorkshireman originally, I think it's really important. However, if you're talking about careers and journeys, you have to earn the right to ask for things. Now, what I mean there is you want to ask for a promotion, you want advice from somebody, you want a pay rise, you want more responsibility. My advice is here is ask for it. Don't wait to be asked, but make sure you're in the right place and you have the capabilities to do and deliver what you're asking for. There's a lot of people, and I've had it lots of times, ask me for promotions, ask me for more money, ask this, and I can't see it in them. It's not there. They're not ready yet, but they want it too quickly, too early. And you've got to prove your wealth. You know, as an example, and again, I'll go right back to the beginning of my career. At the age of 14, I, I, was, I worked in the Abbey Hotel in Malvern. It's where I started my career. I started off washing up pots and pans in the kitchens, peeling potatoes. But after a year, you know, doing that, I asked the restaurant manager if I could work in the restaurant. Would he give me a break? Could I do the Sundays, you know, doing a bit of waiting on? 
And he did. He, he, he gave me the break. He saw some potentialists me, see me in the background in the, in the kitchen and that, and got me trained up. I'm still at school, but, you know, I then moved on to college, which I hated as well. Um, I did a business studies course. Oh, I skived college and went and I was down the wine bar and the dive bar at many lunchtimes. Hated academia. But here I was working front of house in the in the hotel at weekends and evenings. And I would do all these extra shifts because it was extra money and loved it. But again, I then plucked up the courage and I asked the assistant manager of the hotel if there were any jobs going, thinking, you know, I might get a full-time job in the restaurants or something like that. And he must have gone away and had a chat with the GM. And they called me into the office and basically said, would you be interested in a job as a trainee manager? Oh, my God. Wow. You know, that's not what I was expecting. But wow, what a break. And what I learned a couple of years later, or quite a few years later, because I kept in, and I still am in touch with that assistant manager. He's a few years older than me. And even the old GM, Cave Brown Cave, is still going, fully retired now. But I learned later in life that what they had seen in me in my early days, even in the kitchen and this, that, and the other, I was a cocky little so-and-so, but I was a hard worker and I was passionate. But if I hadn't have asked... That's the question. If I had not have asked then, I would probably have ended up going into like a high street bank, working in a bank, going in accountancy, which my father was an accountant. He tried, he was trying to steer me down that network because he had a few friends. And I'd have probably been sat, a lot, sat on a, you know, the till at um, Lloyd's Bank, like my sister ended up doing, which is no, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But again, it's it was that yeah. break, that opportunity. That was your first lesson that's made you one up in your career is ask, but make sure you have the capability to back it up. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing. That was really inspiring. But for those staying school... We'll move move forward, quickly move forward. Another hotel as junior assistant manager in the Midlands. I moved to London with a bunch of those five lads from that hotel. We all moved to London. How old were you when you moved to London? Uh, 1920. Oh, my God. Probably just early 20s. But I worked at a private club in the Stock Exchange as city's assistant manager there. I ended up being a butler, running private dining rooms for one of the big banks in the cities. Wow. And finally got approached to go set up and run Spencer House in St. James's for Lord Rothschild. So this, you know, Spencer House is the ancestral townhouse of the Spencer family, I, Diana. There's a great book, The Alchemist. I've yeah. got it here, guys. I've got it. I'm halfway through. I couldn't put it down. Incredible book. Yeah, so by Colhole, yeah. Read it. I recommend it to anybody to read that and reflect on their journey of where they're going and everything else. Because at the end of the day, life is a journey. And it's about, you know, what you put into what you get out. It's not a rehearsal. But you've got to have a thought of where do you want to be. And there's that old great Alice in Wonderland saying, if you don't know where you're going, you'll certainly end up somewhere else. So you know, trying to think about that and plan for that. But like I said, in, in 1990, I was recruited and got interviewed and basically went up and set up and ran Spencer House. They were just finishing the restoration. My job was to sort of build this hospitality facility within the house. Basically, you know, we turned that house into the great house that it used to be. It had been stripped of all its beauty and love um, during the Second World War and was a boring old building. And Lord Rothschild totally renovated and restored it and spent about 65 million, I think it was, in the restorations. And working there, we set some amazing standards of what the whole hospitality industry should be around, sort of that private entertaining, banqueting, etc. We did G7s, we did government, we did royal events. 
I met some amazing people, some great, you know, great and the good from around the world, some pretty phenomenal people, some pretty awful people as well. And also be, you know, many of them can also be pretty big assholes. As well. <laughs> but a lot of good people. And um, I certainly built my little black book of contacts and networks. And that, again, is something that I've always been really good at. And Nicola, I think you're very good at is yeah. keeping in touch, building a network, be good to people. My dad always said, be good to the people you meet on the way up. You may meet them on the way down. And to be honest, when I, my next role I'll now talk to you about, you know, Lord Rothschild was extremely supportive to me and opened a few doors for me. So my next big one-up, here I am at Spencer House, running that, doing, doing some of the greatest events in hotels, is that we were in the office at Spencer House on a Friday back in 95, and the phone rang in the office, and Annette Reese, our oh, lovely old lady, was, who was our sort of events coordinator, office manager, was on the phone to some American lady, potential client who wanted to come and look at, come and visit the house to have a look about potentially doing an event there next year. Uh, this was Friday afternoon, and the only time she could come is Saturday morning because she was flying out on Saturday afternoon. Because the next day, well, I'm so very sorry, we haven't got an event on, so there'll be nobody here, there's only the security, the house will be locked up, you know, perhaps get in touch with your next visit. And, and I heard Nanette say this, and I don't know why I did this. But I just sort of jumped and said, Nanette, I'm coming up to town tomorrow. Uh, Wendy wants to go and do a bit of shopping. I don't know. But Wendy wants to go and do a bit of shopping. So I could come in and sort of meet this lady for half an hour at, say, 11.30, and then meet Wendy, and we'd go and have our lunch. So we kind of fixed that up. That 11.30 meeting was ended up being nearly three hours. I was absolutely racked over the coals by her indoors for missing out being late and everything else. I don't think we even had mobile phones, and I might have had one. But, but anyway, the lady that I met and showed around the house was one of the most amazing ladies I've ever met in my life and my career, a lady called Debbie Hughes, who was head of global sponsorship for MasterCard and head of World Cup soccer, as they call it, football as we would call it. And Debbie was looking at, she'd, be, she'd just come back from France and the Eurostar. She was also back in the UK looking for venues for their sponsorship of Euro 96. And so that decision ended up with me leaving Spencer House in two months later. Oh, my God. Eventually setting up First Protocol. Yeah, MasterCard became my founding client. I travelled the world with them. I delivered global events around major sporting events, World Cups in France, Japan, Germany, New Zealand, been involved in Formula One activations and sponsorships, not sporting events, because what we built was their meetings and events and conferences for their executives and their key clients. A massive opportunity. But again, just because I took that decision in my life to overhearing a conversation, say, put my hand up, I'll pop into the office. But do you think it's just because you, and I think as event planners as well, you're into, because you want to go above and beyond, you know, above and beyond, and you're, you obviously can be passionate about where you were working. You just think, it's another quick site visit. I'm like, it's going to bring in some business and actually completely change your life. Absolutely, absolutely. That's amazing. You know, some people call it luck. I'd call it more serendipity, which is, I think is what you're sort of referring to and saying to. And I, you know, I have, I can't, yeah, I have always believed in giving 100%, 110%, give, you, know, you can't give 110%, give 100% and focusing on what you do and how you deliver and exceeding expectations, exceeding promise. You know, if you do that, I, again, I'm a great believer, I've always been a great believer, is that 
reward and success will follow. Might not be immediately. It might, you know, you might need to do this a few times and stuff like that, but it will happen. And I think you talk, you know, you look at great athletes, great chefs and successful people. And, you know, I could jump onto my great book, which is Good to Great by Jim Collins. Again, another one, guys, read Good to Great, Jim Collins. And some great learnings in there is, and one of the biggest things he said is, good is the enemy of great. And if you'll accept good as your bar of achievement, then, you you know, it's, it's, it's normal. It's vanilla. You know, you want to target for great. You want to be great at what you do and great at what you do with everybody else. And in building first protocols off the back of World Cup, of Euro 96 and everything else, and the doors that we opened there, Lord, Lord Rothschild was very helpful in connecting. We, who's heard of Party in the Park? Yeah. Everybody. Everybody, yeah. One of my claims to fame is that basically we did the first Party in the Park. That's incredible. How did that come about? Okay, so so basically the first party in the park was, it was called MasterCard Masters of Music in 1996. And um, the CEO of the time of MasterCard, a chap called Gene Lockhart, wanted to do a big event that was on the back of the football sponsorship, but related to music. He'd been at the three tenors in LA or whatever it was, the sort of four years prior. But I wanted to be more fun and more funky and feel. So set this challenge and Debbie set this challenge into me and we brainstormed everything else. And basically in a nutshell, it's like, okay, well, if we could get in Hyde Park, that would be amazing. How do we do that? So I kind of thought, well, you know, MasterCard aren't going to pay just to put on a commercial concert. You, you won't get Hyde Park for that. So we need to link it to a charity. I connected the charity in my head as being the Prince's Trust. Yeah. I then called Lord Lord Rothschild's office and talked to a wonderful lady there called Lofty, which is lady lady called Lady Jane Westenhall, who was Lord R's private sort of secretary, one of these, but you know, dealt with him very much privately. And I explained what I was trying to do, and she said, "Leave it with me. I'll see if we can get an introduction." And literally two days later, I had a phone call saying, "This is the person to call. This is to talk to." So this chap called Manny Amadi initially at the Prince's Trust, and. He talked to him about it. He talked to a guy called Tom Shabir. So this is, again, these connections. Yeah. Tom Shabir, who was the CEO of the Prince's Trust, who said he liked the idea, went in for an op for a meeting. Debbie and I had a sat down, had a meeting. I think I really felt like an imposter. Thinking, my God, here I am with all these very senior people. Tom then marched Harvey Goldsmith in, who was in the building, because he did a lot of work with the Prince's Trust. We brainstormed it, and it just went from there. That's incredible. MasterCard would underwrite the concert, and after a certain, you know, we could get our costs back, they would then benefit. The trust has benefited from millions of pounds from that ever since. So, again, that's a great, great legacy. And uh, so we took, we approached the Royal Parks. The Royal Parks said, No, you must be mad. You're going to ruin our grass. You're going to ruin the grass. <laughs> so we said, Okay, what, do we, what does it need for you to say yes? So, so when we end, MasterCard ended up sponsoring all of their events activities around Euro 96, a lot of the stuff in the parks. Then we went to the police. The police said, you're mad. No, no way. The night before Euro final, we got, you know, we could, it could be England and Germany in the final, which would be pretty chaotic from a security point of view. And, you know, we, there was still a lot of street stuff kicking off then. Police said no. So Prince Charles wrote a letter to then the head of the Metropolitan Police. Oh, my God. And history was made. It is who you know, isn't it? It is who you know. Well, it's it's just putting the pressure on where everything can. And basically, you know, that's kind of just pushing that envelope. Yeah. 
Yeah. How we could achieve all of that, and you know, and then to Mastercard, it was like that was a massive turning point for them in stuff that they had done around sponsorship, and with a lot of other companies around sponsorship. You know, a great friend of mine that I met there, a chap called Elko Vandenal. We met at a car park. We were just opening up this office, and it's our job to open up this office for Mastercard for Euro '96. Elko had come from Holland. He'd been working for Carlsberg and never started working for Mastercard. Elko went on to work for FIFA eventually, and now he's he's now global head of sponsorship for Anheuser Busch. Yeah. I love as well. It's about relationships, but also it's just like you had a vision and you made it happen, and you believed in it, so you made it happen. And I think that's a very important lesson as well. Yeah, I think that some of that vision is, you know, it's not very clear. It's very cloudy, uh, very misty and everything else. But it is, you know, looking, you kind of got, you get a vision. And that's why I'm a very visually connected person. I visualize things, but say, okay, this is what I can see, what I do. But again, how, so how can I connect those dots? How can I make that happen? And coming up with big ideas, yeah, delivering is amazing. Incredible. Go to First Protocol now. So sort of started that. Mark came and joined me at the Euro stuff. and. Then we slowly sort of built up that business. You know, building it, I you know, very much about surrounding myself with great people, mm-hmm. people who were passionate, uh, passionate as I was, people who delivered and focused on delivering excellence. Mm-hmm. Over the years, we grew that to, to a team of over 130 people with offices in, in London, in New York, LA, and Singapore. Was that always the vision to grow to be that big and to be global? My vision was very much about growing a business of substance. So to grow a business, I mean, I, I very much, when I look at my consultancy world, I look at businesses and I say, there's two types of business. There's either a lifestyle business. So you might want a little business that you could earn, you know, 70 grand, 100 grand, 150, 200 grand a year out of, and that's the kind of business I want. And that's the focus. And so it becomes a lifestyle. Um, or you want to build a business which becomes an asset and a value that you can then you know, you could float it, you can sell it, you, et cetera. So, but the value, there is, there is intrinsic value in the business without you. And that's very, that's very much what I was about. I wanted to build something. It didn't have to be the biggest. It was never about being the biggest. It was about creating an intrinsic value in the business. So, you know, that was the focus. So we grew that over to, over the years. How the fuck did I achieve that? <laughs> I look back on that and everything else. All of a sudden you got 130 people. I was tra- traveling here, there and everywhere. I got swallowed up in it all and everything else. In the end, at the, at the end of 2012, I exited the business. I was the major shareholder. We had some plans about merging with a couple of other agencies to make an even bigger agency. Fellow directors weren't quite keen on that. So I'd always had this plan that at some point I wanted to exit, but then leave something to carry on. So we, in the end, we, we, did a, we did a management buyout where they bought out the majority of my shares through raising funds and from other people and everything else. I still own a small share in First Protocol, yeah, still First Protocol Group now, First Agency. But I have to say, in exiting, it was it was very strange feeling. Yes. Here I've been living living life at 110 miles an hour. Two weeks London, two weeks New York, two weeks London, two weeks Singapore, two weeks London, you know, here, there and, and everywhere. And yes, you know, I had a healthy bank balance. Kaching, thank you very much. But I certainly did feel isolated and at a, a bit of a loss, you know, without purpose. And that was a massive change in my life. And it, and it took a good 12 months of a bit of chilling out, focusing on my tennis, getting myself fit again, looking at myself and asking myself in the mirror, what, okay, what do I want? What do I want to do? Do I want to set up another agency? Do I want to buy a venue? Do I, you know, 
do I want to stay in this industry? I was only 52, so wasn't ready for full retirement, but didn't want to be working like I had been working. The amount of hours, I, you know, I miss so much. You've met my daughter, Abby. I mean, to be honest, I miss so much of Abby's growing up. I was hardly around a lot of the time. But so, yes, I wanted to enjoy, enjoy my life, enjoy my wealth a little bit. So I chose not to set up another business as such, but to build a portfolio of roles, portfolio careers, some charitable, some not-for-profit, some social enterprise, and some investments. You know, the whole thing about supporting entrepreneurs is through investment, through consultation, through advisory, through mentorship. And, you know, I want to be busy. I like being busy. Yeah. It gives me a purpose in life. So it's not about making money. And a very privileged place to be. We live quite sensibly and everything else, but we have enough money now to live on. I don't want to be a multi, multi millionaire. A couple is fine, but I've got purpose and I love life to the full. If I can give something back, if I can help other people be successful, and in doing that, I get a little share of that or something like that along the line, along the road, then then that's great. That I think it all comes down to, and we're looking at how I'm working at the moment with Francis in my agency, but it all just comes down to purpose. And I think if you love what you do, the money will come. You have to be passionate and truly believe in, in, what, you, in what you're doing. Well, there's those three circles in Good to Great. Jim Collins, who's a great professor at Harvard, says, you know, what's your bar hack? He's talking really from a company's perspective, but what is your big, hairy, audacious goal? <laughs> Guys, people out there, you can find there's a lot of this stuff. They've got seven things, even on the internet, and it's free. So if you look up Jim Collins, Good to Great, you can visit his site, and there's lots of information on there for free. But the basic three things he says is, what are you passionate about? What do you love? What are you brilliant at? Then what are you good at? What are you the best in the world at? What are you brilliant at? So you can be brilliant. You can love something, but you're not very good at it, but you're brilliant at this. And where is the money? Can you know where's the market? Is there money to be made? So my easy analogy on that was I love tennis. Yes, you can make money at tennis. I ain't no good at tennis. I'm never gonna make a living out of playing tennis. <laughs> so that's not gonna work. And I think if you can sort of say, you know, I love events, you know, I used to joke with my team at FP, I skip to work every day. You know, I, I love it. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's gonna be shit one day, great. But the big picture, this is brilliant. Look, look at what we're doing, look at what we're achieving, guys. And it was always we, not I. And I think that's really important as, as a team. It's not about one individual and everything else. It's about your, your role as a leader is to instill that passion and enthusiasm into the team, to, get, to take them with you. You know, you see great leaders that they take people with them. They don't push them. They're not driving them and everything else. And, I, you know, that's kind of, and it's not easy. You know what? It's not easy, but it's fun. If you love it, it's passionate, it's not hard. Confucius say, find a job you love, you never work a day in your life. All right? And I think that's really important. So if you're getting over those bumps and drumps and everything else along the way, at the end of the day, people are people. And, you, you know, people, you've got to see things differently. People are one of your biggest problems, as well as one of your biggest passions. What you've got to be able to do is, at the end of the day, is to be able to, to look in the mirror and be comfortable with the reflection you see. 100%. I'm proud to be able to look at that and go, you know what? You fucked up a few things. You've been brilliant at a few things. But you've, you've done all right. And I want to close on, I remember one of my teams say to me once, is when we were in the early stage of the agency, 
you know, we do Christmas parties and stuff like that. And I, I, I mean, I'm one of the team. I'm, you know, we're only 10, 12, 14, 20 people and go out and get pissed up with them all. And sorry, excuse my French again, uh, but have a great time. Richard does love having a great time, by the way, guys. I always get Richard on a night out. No, see, I'm, I'm supposed to have grown up now. But, this is, but Sarah was my right hand on my World Cup MasterCard account. She led that account eventually and everything else. It was absolutely brilliant. Sarah Lake, Sarah Tyrrell. She's become you know, a great friend. But I remember this conversation with Sarah. She basically said, Richard, you, you know what? With, with the agency now at a certain size, you need to shift some of the stuff. And she said, it's not about being liked. It's about being respected. And when we talked about it, this conversation that just sort of that resonated with me is that you don't need to be everybody's friend. You need to be their, you know, you are their leader, you're their boss. They respect you, they love you, but they don't want to be friends with you. And it, that that made me change my thinking. And I grew up pretty quickly. You know, I sort of had to change, made some changes, and grew up pretty quickly. And yeah, you know, I would go out for drinks with the team. I would leave at a certain time, done their bit, here's some money for the bar, enjoy guys. Things just had to change. It was, it, I didn't need to be in amongst that many anymore. No, that's fantastic. But I've had a great journey, a great life. Enjoy this industry passionately. That's my story. Thank you so much. Wow. I just, I feel just my heart's really warm. I just love that you've just been so open and honest. And I think I've taken so much from that and I, I know you quite well. So, Everybody listening, I'm sure they've got so much inspiration. And if if anybody wanted to reach out to you, Richard, what's is best to go through LinkedIn? I'm happy to link in with people. If people want a question, if they've got an idea or a thought, they want to bounce something around, I'm, I'm always open open for that. And I think the important thing to think about is, you know, an advisor and a mentor, a non-exec director, all these things, those are not the people that you will get it's not their job to tell you your journey. They're there as a mentor, as an advisor to help you. They're, they're there to listen and to nudge you, to help you think about things and see things differently and set, build your own journey. But it's your journey, not theirs. I think a lot of the time people, people look to advisors, mentors, non-execs as people that will give you the solutions. You know, it's like, it's like motivation. You've got to find those solutions and you know, that motivation internally, it's, it's inside you, but they're there to help with that thinking and, or challenge you. you know, I don't think that's the right, I don't think now is the right time to do this because of this, this, this. But it's still your choice, what you do. No, that's very true. Thank you so much. It's been really, really incredible to have you on today. So I really appreciate your time and for sharing your stories and ways in which you have one up in your career. So thank you very much, Richard. If you enjoyed this episode of One Up in Events with Nicola Root, I would love you to rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps others know that we exist. I'd like to thank my amazing editor and producer, Emma Reevely, my incredible social media manager, Manisha Meiju, and my amazing fiancé, Brooke One Up, for creating music introduction. And of course, a massive thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening. It means so much.